0: The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, helping customers make the switch to solar for savings, energy security, and tax incentives. Learn more at northeast-solar.com.
1: Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Cole Smith.
0: And I'm Monty Belmonte. Today, we celebrate the life and legacy of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. and his impact on the civil rights movement from the 1960s through today.
1: Later on the show, we'll talk with someone continuing the work of Dr. King and so many others from the civil rights movement, Keith Beauchamp. He's a filmmaker and also a cold case investigator who helped reopen the Emmett Till case and who is one of the writers of the Whoopi Goldberg-produced feature film Till, The Emmett Till Story, which is screening at the Triplex in Great Barrington this week. It might be a perfect way to commemorate this holiday. But how did this day become a holiday in the first place? Our guest is Dr. Usman Power Green, professor of history at Clark
0: University, just outside the 413 in Worcester.
1: Dr. Power Green completed his B.A. from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill and an M.A. and Ph.D. from the University of Massachusetts Amherst before arriving at Clark in 2007. He taught courses at the University of Connecticut Stores, Hampshire College, and UMass Amherst.
0: A specialist in African-American social and political movements, Professor Power Green teaches courses for undergraduates and graduate students on American history with a focus on African-American internationalism and comparative social and political movements. Yes. Also on the board of Self-Evident Education, based here in the 413. We've had him on for that previously. And we're here on MLK Day to learn a little bit about the history of how this
2: became a national holiday. Thank you for coming. Yeah, no problem at all. It's always great to be here with you guys on the show. We love having you.
1: Especially because, like, this holiday is, the, I think, now the second youngest holiday. It's younger than everybody mm. in this room. Yes.
2: yes. Yeah. That is true. That is true. <laughs> oh, well, 83, everybody here yeah. has come. Everyone's listening.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so. How did we get MLK Day and yep. why was it important? Like, what were they looking at a new holiday? Mm-hmm. Were they looking at a way to honor him? Yep. How did we get this?
2: Yeah, so you know, to, to understand uh, the MLK holiday, you really have to go back to that moment, that fateful day in April in 1968 when King's assassinated, right? So, actually, four days later, John Conyers, a uh, uh, representative from, from Michigan, was the one that proposed the, the day. The holiday. So surprisingly to some of our our listeners, uh, the day actually was conceptualized pretty closely to, to King's assassination as a recognition of the importance of this person's life and of course, amidst a lot of the turmoil that happened after the assassination. That's surprising. It is surprising. (laughs) And we are going to also
0: be talking about the story of Emmett Till and uh, Mm -hmm. the idea that there was a national movement to try to uh, have a national ban against lynching Mm -hmm. even before Emmett Till was lynched that didn't get signed until 60 (laughs) some odd years later. Spoiler alert, we'll talk Uh, about that. But we're talking about MLK Day and Mm -hmm. and its origins here. So it's four days, what what is that? April 8th um, then in yeah. 1968 that this has been proposed and it yeah. doesn't happen until we're all alive yeah, yeah. in the 1980s. Yeah. What what happened to that early movement and then what, what caused the renaissance of it in the 80s, in the yeah. Reagan era?
2: Yeah, so actually, you know, it, it really does speak to, to, to social movements, right? I mean, an idea, you know, sort of is, is established and it takes people, you know, actually on the ground. Really, uh, you know, in this case, you know, uh, a grassroots movement ultimately, despite the fact that John Conyers, of course, elected officials. Right. uh over the next 15 years uh, to, to get this, you know, a black uh, congressional Congress you know, being able to continue to keep putting it on the docket and saying, look, we need a holiday for Martin Luther King Day. Um, Coretta Scott King, of course, is critical uh, to the process of galvanizing support across the nation uh, to have a holiday in honor of King. And so, you know, fast forward f- about 15 years, uh, Ronald Reagan is president. And uh, despite Jesse Helms, uh, I don't know if, if people are old enough to remember Jesse Helms of North Ooh. Carolina, uh, effort to tar King's image by being a communist is what he said. Reluctantly, Ronald Reagan actually signed, signed into law. And I say reluctantly because, you know, Reagan said that he'd prefer much other, another way to honor King besides a holiday. mm mm-hmm. Like what? Like the Embrace (laughs) Statue. Little little drop for the Embrace Statue.
1: It's
0: on Boston Common. There is a monument. There is a national monument in Washington D.C. too, but that came after the holiday as
3: well. Absolutely. But I
2: mean, I think I think what's critical and important here, I want to drive home, is that we oftentimes get the end result, right? We get the holiday, and we, you know, even maybe we'll get a photo of Credit Scott King, you know, sitting next to or standing next to Ronald Reagan as he signs it, but we lose that 15 years of struggle. In order to make it happen, and people believing it was possible, uh, despite the cynicism of many folk, you know, who, who, you know, even if they supported King at the end of the day, thought the possibility of a national holiday uh, was, you know, maybe not realistic and energy should be put towards something else, right? So those are some of the factors that go into uh, any holiday or any statue or memorial as well.
1: So the initial suggestion of a holiday is brought up on April 8th of 1968, Mm -hmm. but are there other congressmen, congresspeople mm-hmm. who who start to snowball that that help yeah. that action? Like, is there movement on the legislative side in those 15 years before it ends up on Ronald Reagan's desk?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, from the beginning, actually, a bunch of 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 uh, folks came together. You know, who's Shirley Chisholm, who is much better known now because of documentaries more recently, of course, back in the 70s, running as the first black woman run for president. Those who remember that know Shirley Chisholm, uh, Representative Shirley Chisholm from New York. Uh, But she was among the early proponents uh, for the day. Um, And people joined the, you know, from the Congressional Black Caucus, uh, you know, sort of signed on to this. So you do have a cohort, you know, not sort of individual. It really is a cohort of, uh, of black uh, congressional figures that see this as a critical way of, you know, the United States government and sort of our nation to not only acknowledge King, but also to acknowledge the importance of the movement as, as being transformative, uh, fundamentally transformative.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Uzman Power Green this MLK Day. He's a professor of history at-, at Clark University. Despite the fact that it did become a national holiday, it was not wholeheartedly embraced by mm. all of the 50 states. Uh, would you talk a little bit about that af- in the aftermath of Reagan signing this into a holiday into the
2: 1980s? Yeah, you know, it's a, again, some of us who remember public enemy very famously. <laughs> like, uh, almost, uh, <laughs> I would, I'm going to be honest right now, almost 100% of my black history
0: growing up in the white K- suburbs K- of K- Boston K- comes from Public Enemy, K- from KRS-One, K- K- people come. like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, it was good. And it
2: be, because actually I do think it was an important moment, you know, when Public Enemy emerged in the 90s going back to Arizona mm-hmm. A uh, you know, sort of prominent song that they sung to really talk about states like Arizona that really resisted the King holiday and sort of fought it as a federal holiday. I haven't double-checked uh, and see when states ended up actually taking it seriously and, and seeing it. But, but certainly, again, there's the story before, right, that 15 years. There's the next decade after. Um, and then I think, you know, critically on this day, uh, how we've used it. Right, ultimately, right. right? So then, there's the sort of present day uh, 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 aspect of Dr. King's day, and what exactly it means for people and communities. It's like three histories. Yeah. Right.
1: The multifaceted nature of King's message in general Mm -hmm. and how, for lack of better term, whitewashed it Mm -hmm. has become over the course of the years. I think whitewash is the perfect term, actually. Perhaps. (laughs) Yeah. Because there's so much more. Over the years, it's become basically like Martin Luther King was a a force for civil rights. Yeah. Like he was assassinated here. He did. I have a dream. And like, that's it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Absolutely. we We get Selma, the bus strike. But like, there's so much more. With him and the yep. various movements and his influence with them Absolutely. over the course of the years, it's become this one-note thing when there's yep. so many facets to it. Was there more uh, nuance to it in the beginning, or has it always been like, oh, yeah, this one speech?
2: Yeah, so, so there's a couple ways into into thinking about uh, King. First, it's that historians and, and fa- fantastic biographers have written a tremendous amount about <laughs> King, right? And most <laughs> recently, Jonathan Igg King of Biography, last year came out. Which uh, you did a
0: great review for oh, in the Austin Thank you. Thank you. Year. I
2: appreciate that. Um, but you know that that book, many of us who study African American history and, and do the work, you know, we, we always come upon a new biography when you know Stephen Oates and others. we tell Taylor Branch's three-volume The King Years. But actually, you know, part of what scholars uh, are, have seen is really looking beyond the sort of martyr A, and then B beyond the sort of hero worshiping. You know, which I think ultimately. Ends up being whitewashed because of the reductionist nature of hero worshiping, right? I mean, regardless who the person is, as they're sort of celebrated, there's a shrinking of, of who they were as a person and the challenges they faced. And so, you know, those of you all today who, who want to become interested in, you know, I definitely suggest the biography came out recently. I was really surprised at some of the insights about King's insecurities, you know, as a writer, particularly in his younger years. Uh, the central role of Coretta Scott King as a more, the more common of the duo, which is probably shocking to many people because of her background as a singer and performer and also a fantastic writer. So indeed, there, there is a way into understanding black life through King. And I guess that's the sort of ending point I want to make is that mm. actually, if, if, you, if you look at King and study King, he introduces you to certain figures and people um, by looking at his life that can make you do a nice deep dive into African American history.
0: We're speaking with Dr. Uzman Power Green this MLK Day. He's a professor of history at Clark University. One of the things that King is famous for is nonviolence. What mm-hmm. I love about uh, Martin Luther King's day is if you look at federal holidays, mm-hmm. Christmas aside, which is just weird that we have a religious federal holiday as a, <laughs> ostensibly a nation that has separated church and state, every individual that we honor has something to do with war. Yep. This is the first person that does not have to do with war, that, that explicitly has to do with peace. Yep. And yet he himself had to wrestle with the violence that he knew he would face. I remember reading King's yep. biography as yep. a younger man and, yep. and the notion of whether he should carry firearms at home yep. to protect his family. Yep. Talk about the legacy of Dr. King as an as a advocate of nonviolence and what yep. that means in, uh, for a federal holiday with a horrible history of violence that continues even now.
2: Yeah, so there's a few ways to, to approach, you know, for, for us when we want to get into King and the idea of nonviolence. First, it's absolutely critical to point out that Howard Thurman, the theologian, intellectual, uh, who, you know, was went from you know, Howard University to, to, to BU where he met King, uh, was the central figure in nonviolent direct action in the movement more broadly, and uh-huh. King specifically, right? Uh-huh. So King is not the beginning point. Instead, the 30-year, his senior... The, the scholar, the intellectual, and the theologian is going to be the person that's going to bring nonviolent into it. And, and ultimately, when we think about the idea of successfully changing society, as opposed to, say, getting a law passed or something, King's idea that the most effective mechanisms uh, to do so is through nonviolent direct action, which, of course, King talks about as not being passive. Proved to be very, very successful uh, in a variety of ways. I mean, we really have transformed our nation. You know, from the civil the rights, black power era, and thinking about Black Lives Matter now. I mean, much of you know, tremendous change from below has happened through agitation, through marching. You know, people say, "Oh, I'm tired of marching," but it's like, you know what? You know, being able to represent yourself and your cause impacts those who are policy makers. And so despite the limitations, of course, of nonviolent direct action. Of course, there's limitations. By and large, King becomes that figure that projects that to the world, actually to the world, not even just <laughs> to the United States. I mean, his letter from the Birmingham jail, right. you know, I've traveled, I've been abroad, had a chance to teach abroad, is read g- as a global document, 20th, for, you know, 20th century and perhaps even 21st century. So th- those are some pathways, the intellectual pathway and then the impact of, of the philosophy on, you know, social movements uh, to this day. How did
1: one particular song make a
2: difference in making Martin Luther King Day into a federal holiday?
1: Coming up, more with Professor Usman Powergreen from Clark University.
0: You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on (laughs) NEPM. Speaking with Doctor Uzman Power Green this MLK Day. He's a professor of history at Clark University. Khalees had mentioned before that we have sort of whitewashed the legacy of King to the I Have a Dream speech. The I Have a Dream speech is still incredibly powerful. The origins of how he went off script to create what is arguably the most famous speech of all time with Mahalia Jackson in the background yelling, (laughs) tell him about the dream, Martin, and that inspires him. Like I get all goosebumps just thinking about it. And I love it. But there are so many other speeches that I love that I think people don't pay enough attention to. Yep. I remember the first time I went to a, an actual protest to direct political action was mm-hmm. in the early 2000s to protest the Iraq war mm-hmm. on a bus from Riverside Baptist mm-hmm. Church in New mm-hmm. York City where he gave his yep. on Vietnam speech. Absolutely. So, and he was he had a, a sea change where he said, this is these these issues are all interconnected. It's not just about the black struggle here of African-Americans, it's a global struggle. Yep. Can you talk sure. about the transition of yep. King in his own ethos and yep. philosophy while he's got the national spotlight on him for this very important issue.
2: Yeah. So, so just for, for listeners, I definitely recommend uh, his Nobel Prize speech. And you know, I was looking at that today just as a reminder, if you all want to download something and read it, because it does actually talk about you know, just a, a quote from it you know, that I think would really be you know, apropos to what you said. It said, I refuse to accept the cynical notion that nation after nation must spiral down a militaristic stairway Into the hell of thermonuclear destruction. So, you know again he's engaging these themes earlier but of course the moment arrives by the time he gets to the late the late uh, uh, 1960s when clearly the war in Vietnam has, has become atop of this galvanized actress across the nation and um, in his book where, where do we go from here which I think is um, in some ways a, a better understanding of evolution of King's thought we really do see him embracing uh, his role as a global figure we think about Desmond Tutu mm. we think we think about you know uh, obviously, uh, Nelson Mandela and others. I mean, King really did see himself in that moment as a, a global figure, despite the criticism from African-Americans and others that said, well, now here we go. We're dipping into the politics. We're you know, turning you know, our back on a you know, our, our president who supported civil rights. You know, instead, King said, look, I'm a, I'm a global figure. I'm a global figure. This is a global question of American imperialism, right? And so this is something that I, th- I think I must say. And there's some language in, in that speech and some analogies that he gives that, uh, you know, that, that are not kind necessarily to ideas of justifying bombing people. Does that make it
0: feel <laughs> ironic to you that we celebrate him as a national hero, given the behavior of our country still?
2: Well, I mean, I think that um, figures come along, people come along, uh, and they you know, hold up the mirror. That's what King, King does. King's Holiday does, you know, nonviolent direct action, criticism of, of you know, sort of militarism. Uh, it just holds up a mirror to those of us who are so caught in our frustrations that we feel like, oh, this has got to be a reaction to something uh, politically, you know, or, or just something that happens to us, a slight that happens to us. So, in that sense, I, I think it's, um, yeah, that's what King is. It's just more of a, an opportunity to really look at yourself and ask yourself what you value. You know, do you value violence, you know, as, a, as, as the lever in, in, in relationships? Hmm. I don't.
1: I mean, he lost a lot of popularity for his opinions about the the Vietnam War and being mm-hmm. very vocal about them because people didn't necessarily see those connections. I kind of want to ask about Stevie Wonder, but we'll get to it. <laughs> no, ask about it. I think that's a good yeah. question. So, the song. Which song? Happy Birthday. Mm-hmm. Sung at birthday parties across black America ever since it came out. Can you talk about its role in making people more aware that we didn't quite have a holiday yet.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's actually interesting that you, you bring that up. I mean, so, so the song comes out in 1980, right? right? And so it's going to be a few years later that, you know, it ultimately it would happen. Uh, you know, I, I think that popular culture consistently, particularly music, consistently raises consciousness in ways that spread, uh, you know, ideas and, and, you know, some things that are political to broader groups of people. And, you know, we, we mentioned public enemy. Ed- me uh, earlier and so I think Stevie wonder you know by recognizing the, the the you know what he saw to be hypocrisy of not having a day yeah I mean it's very hard to measure the impact of a particular speech or song um but it stays with people right lyrics stay with people so I'm going to make the case that I do think that uh, <laughs> popular culture and the song you know did provide uh, another example of you know of, of an african-american uh, musician uh, who also is a global icon you know particularly by this moment you know, by the 80s, really spreading that message of the critical role of, of Martin Luther King and and the importance of having a day in his honor. So so yeah, I, I'm with you on that. <laughs> And when you
0: think about it, I mean, like Martin Luther King famous for his nonviolence. What is more nonviolent in a way of communicating than creating art, creating Absolutely. music? And then the influence that that one song has that even the professor of history at Clark University says <laughs>
1: yeah. on, on this creation
0: of a national holiday, Dr. Uzma Powergreen, yeah. is awesome. It makes me just like want to love and celebrate and make art more because who knows what's going to happen with something like that. I bet you Stevie Wonder didn't think this song is going to make this a national <laughs> holiday,
2: but I bet he didn't not think it a little bit too, you know? There you go. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, right, right. Well, you know when you're when you're brilliant as Stevie Wonder is, oh my, yeah. um, you know the the possibilities of your impact are really broad, right? So absolutely. <laughs>
0: Dr. Usman Power Green, who's a professor of history at Clark University, this MLK Day, um, as a black man in America, what does the legacy of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. mean to you on a day like today?
2: Yeah, I mean for me. You know, Martin Luther King Day has always been uh, a day in which, you know, I, I personally try to read King, uh, reflect on-, on his, you know, voluminous writings. I mean, you know, it's interesting to think about him in the spotlight for really only like a decade and a half, about 15 years or so. Um, so for me, the day is an acknowledgement of the nation of the critical role that, um, you know, a-, a black man played. But it's also an opening and introduction. You know, so whenever I'm asked to speak, um, shout out to Wilburham, Munson Academy. But, you know, I think it's, a, it's an opportunity. It's an opportunity to bring anyone, everyone, my community beyond that into a conversation. Right, and this conversation has to do with the role of the civil rights movement in transforming this nation, and, and perhaps even the world. And one of the important levers is the sort of nonviolent mission and philosophy that the King had. You know, so despite the you know King's critics, who were you know of course young people tearing it up in the seal, by the late '60s, tearing it up mm-hmm. as they must, as they must. <laughs> as must. Um, they did respect his vision, and I think that's a lesson that, that I take with me: is is to you know respect the, the ideas, respect the vision, but Look at it as an opening, as a as, as sort of like a yeah, like a a doorway into a much broader history. Instead of as was suggested, merely reciting the you know I Have a Dream speech, mentioning a few things he did. But oftentimes, usually focusing on the martyrdom, which is like yes. it's like all right, let's let's go backwards and see you know how we can um you know find an aspect of his his activism. You know, maybe this year, everybody uh, go check out Coretta Scott King's autobiography, read about Coretta Scott King, you know, or you know get into many of the activists. Uh, um, you know, who who interacted with them and were critical to that. I think that would be a, a great way to spend the day. And for me, it's something that, that I do.
1: Coretta Scott King's biography is, is amazing. But yeah. are there, like, Bayer Russian's getting a movie. Yes. Medgar Evers already had one, had a, had a miniseries. Are there mm-hmm. other people in the movement, not to take away from MLK, who was yeah. clearly the figurehead of, of the movement for those, those yeah, number the of media, years. Definitely. But, like, who else hasn't quite gotten their flowers yet?
2: Well, I mean, it's shocking that Ella Baker... It is not a household name. Ella Baker, who was uh, at some point the executive director of, of even the King's organization um, and is an activist based in New York. Can't even list off all, I'm not gonna list off all the different organizations she was in. But, um, but Ella Baker would be a person that, that I would make sure I go and read um, and, and try to find speeches by her. But she was authentically an activist, right? And so much of her time was spent, we talk about kitchen table conversations, like, but she is, similar to Bear Rustin, the brains behind much of the actors in the 50s and early 60s that took place that's going to be monumental, that King's going to find himself, you know, involved in, particularly sit-ins, particularly nonviolent, you know, freedom rides, these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. So that's a person who I would recommend everybody to, uh, yeah, dig deeper into and, and 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 read about and learn because uh, if you, again, King, you know, I said this, you know, sort of like, you know, as you were talking about, you know, King was, and he acknowledged it, that he was not the leader of the movement as much as he was a representative of the movement. and, you know, one must, you know, as my, one of my professors once r- reminded me, he was there at the March in Washington, you know, the sort of photo you see, the march started without them. They had to run and grab King and others and put them in the front of the march <laughs> <laughs> because the, the, the people started moving, the masses wanted to move. And so I uh, sort of uh, shout out to Michael Thelwell, uh <laughs> Professor Marinus oh, in nice. Black Studies yeah. at UMass Amherst for that wonderful gem. But, I, you know, <laughs> I tell my students those stories because so much of how we understand King and the movement really. Does come from the mass media by and large, and the framework tends to be around heroes and villains. And a lot of the nuances of the movement get missed because you know, we even sometimes have a feel like we have an investment in understanding the movement and King a certain way, and that certain way is you know, this sort of deified character, heroic figure that you know we can look to, does nothing wrong, and all this, of course, is completely untrue. Everybody's but, uh, human. But, and the thing is, and King knew that though. That's the difference is that King never really, I mean, you know, they teased him and called him DeLaud. That was like the, <laughs> they used to make fun of him the young black power activists in the 60s, mm-hmm. some of whom might be listening now and aren't, you know, are a different age now. But they tease him, you know, all the time and, but at the end of the day, they respected him and, Uh, They understood that he had value and his ideas were important, even if they completely disagree with them by, you know, after 66 or so.
1: Black family doesn't become stronger by by ribbing each (laughs) other gently and sometimes not so gently. (laughs)
2: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Dr. Uzman Power Green, professor of history at Clark University, just outside the fabulous four and three in Worcester, but you live here.
2: Yeah, I live in Northampton. Yeah. Yes.
0: Thank you for coming and talking to us about
1: the legacy of Dr. King on this MLK Day.
2: Oh yeah, no, thanks for having me, and uh, yeah, hope everyone has has a great day.
1: Go to the most racist congressman that you know and have your celebration there. Yes, (laughs) I like that idea. Up next, the power of filmmaking to bring justice in unsolved civil rights cases.
0: We'll talk with filmmaker and cold case investigator Keith Beauchamp about his movie Till, the Emmett Till story, and how his filmmaking helped to reopen that case. You're listening to The Fabulous 413
1: on 88.5 NEPM. This was my boy,
3: Emmett Till
0: body of Emmett Lewis
2: Till has been found dead.
3: Can I at least just fix him up a bit? No. They have to see it for themselves.
1: I remember seeing pictures of the casket. Oh yeah, because my my grandmother had like the Jet magazine where you they were that? talking about the the funeral. Like we would talk about it in Metco because Metco had African Americans like history classes for all the black kids who had to go out to the suburbs mm-hmm. to learn school. We got extra <laughs> classes. So, yeah, I've also been familiar with it all of my life. Yes. As
0: yes. everybody should be, frankly, but yeah. Mm-hmm. Welcome back to The Fabulous 413. In celebration of MLK Day, the Triplex Cinema in Great Barrington will be hosting an educational screening and conversation of the movie Till with producers of the film. You missed the public screening, which was earlier this afternoon, but there is a screening for school kids from Great Barrington's Du Bois Middle School and students from neighboring schools tomorrow at the Triplex. And
1: are we not all students of life? Yeah. Those two producers are Thomas K. Levine, a Berkshire local, and Keith Beauchamp, who joins us now He's one of the writers of the movie Till and is an award-winning filmmaker who has produced and directed documentary and feature films that focus on the issue of civil rights. Having learned about the story of Emmett Till as a young man, Keith has devoted much of his life to the Emmett Till case.
0: He's also collaborated with the FBI Civil Rights Cold Case Initiative, working with federal agents on unsolved civil rights murders. His documentary, The Untold Story of Emmett Lewis Till, was instrumental in getting the U.S. Department of Justice to reopen their investigation into the death of Emmett Till.
1: His efforts led to President Biden signing, at last, the Emmett Till Anti-Lynching Act in 2022. The passage of the long overdue bill gives federal prosecutors another tool to prosecute some of the country's most
3: brutal hate crimes.
0: Thank you, Keith, for joining us.
3: Thank you so much for having me.
0: This is an incredible film, and what strikes me in regards to what Khalees just said in the intro about that anti-lynching bill is that part of the script that you wrote at the beginning talks about how there is a bill on the Hill at that time in 1955 that's trying to make this uh, a criminal act. It took how many years from 1955 to 2022?
3: Almost 70 years.
0: Yeah.
1: Sixty-seven yes, years. Yes,
3: that's that's just unfortunate. But I do have to be um, very honest about this whole movement. Uh, should I say the anti-lynching movement? You know, it took over 120 years wow. for us to get a bill like this passed in Congress and signed into law, mm-hmm. and over 200 attempts. And so it wasn't just the Emmett Till case that was, you know, an impetus to this anti-lynching movement it's been many many years of people out there in the forefront trying to get such law passed
1: because yeah. there were anti-lynching amendments that were attached to the 13th 14th and 15th amendment when they came up to vote too is the thing that p- most people don't necessarily remember or exactly. or know.
0: keith what's interesting is if i read your bio correctly you w- wanted to be making feature films but kind of then delved into the world of documentary filmmaking, this Ooh. almost activist filmmaking, and then come full circle because Till, which was released in 2022, is a feature film. It stars, I mean, the, the big name that people would recognize in it is Whoopi Goldberg, who's also one of the producers. Talk about right. that, go, that process of wanting to be a filmmaker to getting to know the family of Emmett Till to bringing this to the screen.
3: Well, that's a good question because I really, you know, I'm still grappling with me becoming a filmmaker. I consider myself an unintentional filmmaker because it was not something that I sought out to do. I actually um, thought I would be a civil rights attorney. You know, mm-hmm. that was what was one big my biggest hopes of growing up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana and coming across the story of Emmett Till at the early age while I was in my parents' study, looking through old vintage magazines. And that's how I discovered the story of Emmett Till at the age of 10. And just so happened my parents was walking by the study at that time of my discovery. And they walked in and felt the need of telling me the story at that time. But throughout my life, the name Emmett Till kept resurfacing. When I got into high school, I was interracially dating. And the first thing my parents would tell me before I left the house at night was don't let what happened to Emmett Till happen to you. So it became an educational tool to teach me about the racism that still exists in this country today. But it wasn't until two weeks before my high school graduation where I had my real run in with racism, I call it. And that was when I was assaulted by an undercover police officer for dancing with a white classmate of mine. That was the moment that I vowed that I would put myself in a position of power so that these type of acts never happen to a person of color again. So I felt the only way that could be possible if I became a part of a system to fight it, and of course I decided to go to Southern University of Baton Rouge and study criminal justice in hopes of becoming a civil rights attorney. But it was during my junior year of college where I was introduced to filmmaking by my childhood best friend who uh, moved to New York City and started working with his sister and her film production company. And what best friends do? We want to hang out with each other. I begged my parents, convinced (laughs) them to let me sit out a couple of semesters and told them, look, if it didn't work out for me in film, that I would continue undergrad, graduate, go to law school. And it ended up working out for me. And and the the, the icing on the cake is my parents became my first executive producers. Wow. um, And was behind, of course, the production Of the untold story of Emmett Lewis, till the documentary that led to the reopening of the case. They actually gave me the the finances I was supposed to go to law school with to produce the film.
1: Are there unexpected parallels that you've encountered between the course of civil rights attorneyship? That's not a word, but like (laughs) civil rights law, um, that course that you were originally going on, and the filmmaking Mm. course that you're currently on?
3: Well, I realized going through the research and the process of, of learning about Emmett Till, I was able to use the best of both worlds, per se, um, use filmmaking as my activism tool, but the brains behind it, the way the story is told, my investigative skills, you know, all came from my early stages of, of criminal justice. And so meeting Mother Mobley, Emmett Till's mother, was the greatest inspiration behind these productions, because if I had not have, if I didn't get her blessing, put it that way, I would have never touched the story. And so from 1995, early late 95 is when I first spoke to Emmett Till's mother, the late Mrs. Mamie Till Mobley, by phone, we met face to face in 1996. And she instantly became you know, my confident friend and of course my mentor for eight and a half years until she unfortunately passed away. So it was through her learning about her journey and understanding her fight that became the greatest inspiration, um, the fuel behind me wanting to make a film on Emmett Till because we felt that it would be the best way to get the information out to the masses as well as, you know, help set up a justice-seeking atmosphere that will allow an Emmett Till case to be resolved.
1: How did you get the information to contact her? Well, it's
3: interesting because, you know, being a filmmaker anywhere, I mean, you have to have a side job. So my side job was at, here in New York at Estee Lauder headquarters, something that would totally, I mean, you would be surprised <laughs> <laughs> you know, you see someone such as myself working in a corporate office at ST law, But I was sitting in the office after making the decision um, to take on the story. But when I made that decision, I knew that I had to reach out to Mrs. Mamie Till Mobley because of the fact, here's the mother who was still alive and with us who had been fighting for so long to get justice for her son. But most importantly, at the time, we had the discussions of appropriation, who's telling our stories and how they're being told. And I didn't want to get caught in that web, but I did the right thing. I was sitting at the office and went online Unlike we go online now, people don't can't really understand, you know, the challenge of going online in the <laughs> 1990s and, go, and, and going online, you know, we had the dial-up thing going on. We had web pages, not websites, but um, I, I went online and I started, you know, doing a number of searches on Emmett Till and I came across the Emmett Till Foundation page. And on that page, it has the, had the information of Mamie Till Mobley and had her telephone number and address. After discovering that, I was nervous about calling. So I reached out to um, a good friend of mine um, who actually ran the foundation page at the time. And we had a conversation about it. He was like, Keith just call." And I picked up the phone and I dialed the number. And as soon as she picked up the phone, I quickly hung up in her face and I did that because I had not followed uh, Mother Mobley's journey. I knew about her, but I never really followed her. So I didn't know what type of state of mind she would be in. I didn't want to open up old rooms. Mm -hmm. And so after hanging up in her face, I I gathered myself and built that courage in me once again. And I dialed the number and as soon as she picked up the phone, I immediately apologized to her about hanging up (laughs) on her face. And she began to ask me, why did I hang up? And I explained (laughs) to her the story, you know, how I always felt, and it was a kindred spirit of mine, how I learned about the story at the age of 10, how its story was always a part of my life and upbringing. And I did not want to um, put her in a bad mood. I didn't want to uh, open up old wounds. You know, that conversation we had the first time lasted for two two hours. You know, it was just amazing. And then when I met her face to face in 1996 at her home, if she were to be alive today, the way she described it, which I heard her say to uh, people before, was that it was as if it was love at first sight because she knew everything about me. We had talked over the phone and I talked about my dreams of telling the story and getting justice done. And... I became a foot soldier in the fight, and that helped tremendously with um, the movement that we both started.
0: So, did Keith's films finally allow the FBI to bring
1: justice to the family of Emmett Till? (laughs) Coming up more with filmmaker and cold case investigator Keith Beauchamp. We'll also hear about another important case as filmmaking has helped to reopen.
0: You're listening to the fabulous 413 on 885 NEPM.
3: to any of us anywhere in the world had better be the business of us all.
0: We're speaking with filmmaker Keith Beauchamp, who's one of the writers behind Till, the uh, Orion Pictures release from 2022, which, as you mentioned, your relationship with Mrs. Mamie Till Mobley, that story is told from her perspective. It's told through her lens, and I think that that makes that particular story, the way to approach that story, that much more powerful. Talk about the decision between you and the other writers and director to approach the Emmett Till story, which so many people know um, from uh, Mother Till's perspective.
3: You know, for me, the story, the film, the feature film Till was a 28-year effort for Uh myself to get made. (laughs) And the Untold Story, the documentary, was a result of my first failed attempt to make the feature film. Nobody would touch it. In 1995, I actually wrote a script that was optioned off by producers, and it was never produced. I think that was the greatest thing that could have ever happened, because it allowed me to learn more about Till and go into the deep south and the Mississippi Delta and find eyewitnesses, players, in the Emmett Till story itself. The journey with myself, Fred Zolo, Barbara Broccoli, Whoopi Goldberg, Thomas Levine, and Mike, Michael riley that started 20 years ago. I first got a phone call from Thomas Levine asking to meet with me, and, and as well as Fred Zolo, to discuss the possibility of working together to produce Till, the movie. And Till uh, was supposed to be Fred Zolo's trilogy of Mississippi films, because he's known for Mississippi Burning, and right. Mississippi. And so we were able to sit down and, and talk about our passion to tell the story, and I felt this would be the right team. We sat down, we wrote different you know drafts of the script, and it kept bringing us back to having Mother Mobley as the protagonist. It was the right angle to take this film because all I ever wanted to do was to resurrect my mentor and introduce her to the world again and experience the power, that resilience, that inspiration that I felt when I first met her. And the work of, of Chinoya Chiku coming mm-hmm. aboard and believing in the project and also having, having her touch to the script, it was the perfect match to tell the story of
0: Till. And she's one of the co-writers and the director of the film Till, yes. which there was a free screening the, earlier this afternoon on MLK Day. There'll be a, a screening for kids from the Du Bois Middle School as well as neighboring schools tomorrow at the Triplex Cinema. And you know, while I don't want to say go out there and support a billionaire, if you do happen to have Amazon Prime, you can watch it right now as part of Prime, which, <laughs> yes. is, which is what I did or, You you know, you can last go, out, night.
1: go out and brave the
3: 12 and 13 year olds. See Pull if it. they'll
0: let you in. I don't see how exactly. we can Right. They're, uh,
3: they're see how disgusting. they get engaged <laughs> and, you know, we're going to have some heavy discussions about, uh, heavy cleansing discussions <laughs> about Till and the race in America, and I, I look forward to
0: it. We're speaking with Keith Beauchamp, who is one of the writers of Till.
3: You've worked w- with the civil rights
1: cold cases yes. federally, but you've also done more films in that vein, too. There's the series Murder in Black and White and the story of Johnny May Chapel. Can you talk about her a little bit, because that story is heartbreaking in kind of the same way to me as Emmett Till's story? Yes,
3: um, right after I got involved with the FBI's Civil Rights Cold Case Initiative, because it wasn't going on at the time of the reopening of the case. It was my work that inspired the Civil Rights Cold Case Initiative, which later becomes the Emmett Till Unsolved Civil Rights Crimes Act hmm. that allows us to go back to revisit civil rights murder cases from our past, to see if they weren't. New Investigations and Possible Prosecutions. The Johnny Mae Chappelle story was um, the second case that I actually investigated. I actually reached out to Shelton Chappelle. I read a story about him in New York Times. And we befriended each other and we began to talk about his ongoing fight to get justice for his mother. And so um, Johnny Mae Chappelle, she was, murdered on March twenty third, 1964. I hope I have those dates right. And she was a mother of 10. I believe she was 36 years old at the time. She was a mother of 10 who was shot shot and killed during um, the racial unrest in Jacksonville, Florida in 1964. It was a story that I felt strongly needed to be told because of the fact that the perpetrators who was involved with her death. We're still alive, but never truly served time. And so this is an ongoing fight that her son Shelton Chappelle, and as well, and I have to say the detective at that time, um, Lee Cody uh, was fighting to get uh, resolved. And so it's a story that we should all know, especially when you talk about civil rights in this country. It had a profound impact in the civil rights movement in Jacksonville, Florida, around the South.
1: Cause she was just walking to the store and yes. was shot basically like getting something for for her kids on, on the way to the grocery store and on her way back was assaulted and, and murdered. It's a harrowing, haunting reminder.
3: I've worked on many of these cases. And so it's been a very difficult journey for myself trying to juggle uh, these investigations and also be the filmmaker at the same time. And so I'm just getting out of the dark web that I've been in for so long because this is all that I've ever known to do. Um, I've been doing this since I was 22 years old. I'm actually 52 now. So over half of my life has been dedicated not only to Till, but also to these other civil rights murder cases that we hope uh, families could get some type of justice and closure with. And so, you know, this has been part of my DNA for some time.
1: That said, in light of like how heavy both the research and the production ends up being, what were your feelings after the Till case was eventually
3: closed in <laughs> 2021? Khalees, a, that's a good question. I, I'm still um, trying to process it all. I, I think we had an opportunity to finally get justice in the, in the Till case. And unfortunately, we didn't we failed. And I say that because we had all the evidence in the world that someone should have been held accountable for the kidnapping that led to the lynching amendment too. They confess to it. Yeah. That's right. They I mean, confessed And, to and, it. and yeah. is
0: the reason that they couldn't, that, that nothing could happen, is because of double jeopardy? Like they just couldn't be no, tried?
3: No. Well, in terms of, of Roy Bryan and J.W. Malum, yes, double jeopardy oh. rule. Uh huh. But I discovered there's up to 14 people involved with the kidney. Oh, yeah. Uh huh. Yeah. And Including the last remaining folks. person was Carolyn bryant Donald. Right. Who, who just, just died last year, was, right? Who just died. And literally, I watched the case be derailed because, and I hate to say it, this administration did not want to actually convict this woman on their dime. Mm -hmm. And so it's, they allowed her to um, pass away without being held accountable for her actions. Life is just interesting, the way we embrace stuff, the way we take information in, how things become commercialized to the way in a certain way, and that all played, the politics all played a role in us not receiving the justice that we wanted. And so, you know, now it's about educating the masses, making sure that these types of acts never happen ever again, and that any opportunity that we have to reconcile our past, uh, we have an opportunity to do it. But I I think, you know, it's it's an interesting time. You know, we're battling so many ills, but I have to say it's not its not so different from what we were battling in 1955. I often said that Till is one of those stories that, you know, we have to continuously um, educate ourselves about. It. I mean, this is something Mother Mobley would tell me often. She would say all the time Keith, you must continuously tell Emmett's story until man's consciousness is risen because only then that would mean justice for Emmett Till. But for the longest time, I didn't quite understand what she was saying to me because I was so young. I, you know, I would hear these words from this prophetic woman and I didn't want to fail her in any way. But I realized a good 20 years ago, I realized that what she was saying was that no matter how hard we fight for justice for Emmett, it's not gonna stop all the Emmett Till's of the world from happening. And that was the message that she wanted me to understand as well as the world, that although Emmett's story happened in 1955, we do have those Emmett Till's of the day, the George Floyd's of the world. these are the moments that we have to really look at and challenge humanity in doing the right thing. This is the moment that we need to gather, gather nice behind these families to make sure that justice is done.
1: Do you have any faith or, or hope that both till acts, like the one again, the one that is anti-lynching and the one that is cold cases, might mm-hmm. adjust their texts to accommodate and pursue those who were actively involved in obstructing the justice that should have been served?
3: That's a good question, Felice. It's actually positioned in a way for it to be done now.
1: Then what is our problem?
3: Do, Do we have people who are in these positions of power? Do we have enough people who have the courage to go down that road? And this is what I've been battling for so many years and fighting to get justice for Emmett. And so I just hope that with all these initiatives that have have come along uh, with the acts that have been passed, the laws that have been passed in Emmett Till's name, that we finally get some traction and get justice. Because that's what's needed right now. You know, we're all suffering from a racial fatigue. But, you know, in order for us to get past these these dark moments of life, we have to do something in terms of recon- and reconciling the wrongs from yesterday. And that's very important. To me. What's your next project? Ooh, wow. At least that's, that's an interesting question. I'm trying to figure <laughs> out what's next for me. It looks like I may be back going back to television. I want to make sure that I have the injustice files always running because it gives us an opportunity to address a lot of the cases that we're talking about in real time. It's exciting, you know. I'm still riding this high off the till. Mm-hmm. I'm upset that we didn't really get the courtroom justice that we deserved, but I'm still you know, out there hitting the pavement, educating people about the story because there's no other story that speaks more to this generation, political and racial climate the story of Emmett Till is actually a mirror image to what we're living with in this country today.
0: Keith Beauchamp is one of the writers of the movie Till, which was screened for free at the Triplex Cinema in Great Barrington for the general public earlier today, but as I mentioned, is available easily on streaming, will be screened tomorrow for kids from Great Barrington's Du Bois Middle School. Brave it,
1: the eighth graders! Yeah, I think they'll, maybe they'll <laughs> let you in. Tell them
0: that the Fabulous 4 and 3 sent you and maybe they'll let you in.
1: <laughs> Bring and, candy. And uh, Thomas K.
0: Levine, who's also got, got uh, Berkshire Connections and is a producer That's of right. the film, will be involved in a Q&A there. I for one uh i watched the film last night keith and my 10 year old walked in while i was watching the movie and sat down and watched the end of it and i think got the gravity behind that particular story and it just goes to show you you know the power of filmmaking to change people's minds and change people's opinions and even to change the ideas behind our system of justice in this country and all the hard work that you've been doing with this thank you so much for spending some time with us today here on mlk day
3: Well, thank you for having me, and and please come out and support the film. Absolutely.
1: Tomorrow on The Fabulous 413, John Bonifaz, the Amherst-based attorney and political activist specializing in constitutional law and voting rights.
0: He's the president and co-founder of Free Speech for the People, and his organization is the one trying to keep Trump off the ballot in Massachusetts.
1: Thanks for spending some of your Martin Luther King Jr. holiday with us, thanks to the Fabulous 413 tech team, and go get free, y'all. We'll see you tomorrow on The Fabulous 413.